Well, tonight we're beginning Esther chapter 4. Esther chapter 4. Remember, this is a very unique book. God is not mentioned. Prayer is not mentioned. His word is not mentioned. In fact, nothing spiritual really is mentioned. And so it's very unique. All those things we think should be in the Bible are not there. The Jews have chosen to remain in Persian exile. They're living outside of God's will. And yet, God is the main character of the book. God is at work behind the scenes. His providence is being worked out. And as this unfolds, we're going to see this more and more. Just real quick, in chapter 1, we saw in the third year of King Ahasuerus' reign that he issued a drunken decree to have his wife put away from his presence forever after she refused to enter the room with a bunch of drunken men. And that paved the way for Esther to be selected as queen four years later, probably a little over four years later in chapter 2. But remember, that was not some fairy tale beauty contest. It was an ugly process. It was brutal. She was forced against her will but she was selected as queen. And God's going to use that in His providence. And then in chapter 3, we were introduced to Haman the Agagite. All of the king's servants were required to bow and to reverence Haman. But there was one who refused, Esther's uncle, Mordecai. He did not obey the king's command, and as a result, Haman gets mad, and he issues, issues the devil's decree to eradicate all the Jews throughout the empire, from India all the way to Ethiopia. And remember that in the Medo-Persian Empire, once a decree is issued by the king, it cannot be revoked. Not even the king can change. <laughs> so that still cracks me up. He, he couldn't even change his own, his own word, his own law. And so Haman pushes for this to be issued. It is. It cannot be revoked. So we left off last week with this looming genocide hanging heavy over the empire. It's perplexing the people. They don't understand why has this been issued? What did they do wrong? Nothing is given as to why they are to be killed. And they ought to be concerned because once one people group is targeted, who's to say you're not next? Somebody might try to rejoice. Oh, the the Muslims are going to be eradicated tomorrow in America. Uh, Don't rejoice at that. Because your day may be the next day. And so anyway, we're, when, when we're on equal footing, the gospel wins. Amen. I'm not going there tonight. As we begin chapter 4, though, we'll see the response of the Jews throughout the empire, and more directly, Mordecai's response to seeing this decree posted. And, and he's located at the epicenter of where this is taking place. He's in Shushan. That's where the palace is located. You might hear it referred to as Susa in secular history, and and that's where he's at. And in chapter 4, we get what is probably the most famous verse in all of this book. Now, that's a very condensed version of what has taken us 16 weeks to get to. So if you've missed any of the lessons, please go back and listen. You'll get all the finer details of what's been covered so far. But since we are introducing a new chapter tonight, I would like for us to read the entire chapter. Esther chapter 4 begins... When Mordecai perceived all that was done, 
Mordecai rent his clothes and put on sackcloth with ashes and went out into the midst of the city and cried with a loud and bitter cry and came even before the king's gate, for none might enter into the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. And in every province, whithersoever the king's commandment and his decree came, there was great mourning among the Jews and fasting and weeping and wailing, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes." So Esther's maids and her chamberlains came and told it her. Then was the queen exceedingly grieved, and she sent raiment to clothe Mordecai and to take away his sackcloth from him, but he received it not. Then called Esther for Hatak, one of the king's chamberlains, whom he had appointed to attend upon her, and gave him a commandment to Mordecai to know what it was and why it was. So Hatak went forth to Mordecai unto the street of the city, which was before the king's gate. And Mordecai told him of all that had happened unto him and of the sum of the money that Haman had promised to pay to the king's treasuries for the Jews to destroy them. Also he gave him the copy of the writing of the decree that was given at Shushan to destroy them, to show it unto Esther and to declare it unto her and to charge her that she should go in unto the king to make supplication unto him and to make requests before him for her people. And Hatak came and told Esther the words of Mordecai. And again, Esther spake unto Hatak and gave him commandment unto Mordecai. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces do know that whosoever, whether man or woman, shall come unto the king into the inner court, who is not called, there is one law of his to put him to death, except such to whom the king shall hold out the golden scepter that he may live. But I have not been called to come in unto him, come in unto the king these thirty days. And they told to Mordecai Esther's words. Then Mordecai commanded to answer Esther, Think not with thyself that thou shalt escape in the king's house more than all the Jews. For if thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, then shall their enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. But thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed. And who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Then Esther bade them return Mordecai this answer. Go, gather all the Jews that are present in Shushan, and fast ye for me, and neither eat nor drink three days, night or day. I also and my maidens will fast likewise, and so will I go in unto the king, which is not according to the law, and if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went his way and did according to all that Esther had commanded him. So the decree to kill all the Jews from whom the Messiah would arrive, the tribe of Judah, has now been issued throughout 127 provinces of the Persian Empire. They have 11 months until they are to be eradicated. 11 months for this law to take effect. And remember, this is irrevocable. Daniel 6.15, when Daniel was in captivity, we read this, The law of the Medes and Persians is that no decree nor statute which the the king established may be changed. That's Daniel 6.15. So this has now been issued. It's been sent forth. It cannot be changed. Now can you imagine if a law was passed in America tomorrow that all the Christians would be allowed to be killed in 11 months, what that might do to you? How would you respond? In our Second Amendment mindset, we might be like, bring it on. I think there would be a lot of concern. There would be a lot of distress. 
This command, we're talking men, women, and children killed simply because of how they were born. Well, in verse 1, Mordecai perceived all that was done. He, he rinsed his clothes. He puts on sackcloth with ashes. And we aren't told, but I can't help but wonder if Mordecai doesn't sit there and contemplate how he's responsible for this. He's the one that put this in motion. He's, he's the one who refused to bow to Haman and, and to give him reverence. And I would think Mordecai knows this is because of my actions. I, I, can you just imagine the weight of how that would have made him feel? If bowing and reverencing Haman did not include worship, then we know Mordecai was wrong for disobeying the king's command. But if it did include worship, which the language seems to suggest, then he was right in disobeying the king's command. Whichever is the case, we see how one man's actions can impact a multitude of people. One man. It's interesting. What if, what if one man just sold out for God? What if one man did evil? You see, we don't live unto ourselves. Our actions have a ripple effect that touch many lives. We don't like it to be that way, but that's how it is. I remember while I was stationed at Minot Air Force Base feeling the impact of a decision that I had nothing to do with. You know what I'm talking about? And I had to suffer the consequences because of somebody else's boneheaded mistake. You'll remember, I think, especially you military men, in 2007 when they flew the nukes from Minot to Barksdale. Well, I was in the bomber community at the time, and so we had to do all these exercises, all these inspections to try to right or wrong that. Listen, I was a meteorologist. They don't even issue me a weapon, much less touch a nuclear weapon. And yet here we are, here we are paying the consequences of somebody else's actions. Many long hours away from family and so forth. A lot of high-ranking people were asked to resign. Many were fired as a result of something they never really had their own hands on. And, and it was such a far-reaching event, it led to the establishment of the Global Strike Command. And so, one man's actions. I don't know who the guy was that carted him out of the weapons storage facility, right? I don't know who loaded him up. I don't know the air crew that looked. But one person's mistakes... It touches a lot of people sometimes. You may think your decisions only affect you, but your actions will reach further and they will affect others more than you can imagine. If you decide to live outside of the will of God, it's not just going to impact your life. If you choose to neglect God's Word and prayer, it will touch somebody else's life in a negative way, some form or fashion. Maybe it's a parent, maybe it's a friend, maybe it's a future spouse. Whatever the case, listen, when we're not doing what God's told us to do, it can reach out and touch other people. Likewise, when we do what God's called us to do, it can impact other people in a good way. When the ten spies brought back an evil report about the promised land, they convinced the, the children of Israel, almost all of them, this is a terrible idea. We've been brought out here to die. We'd be better if we go back to Egypt. 
And a whole generation had to wander in the wilderness and die because of ten men didn't trust God. We think of David. Had a lapse of faith and he numbers the people. He numbers his armies instead of trusting God. God sent a plague that killed 70,000 people. One man's decision affected the entire population of Rapid City. Well, we're probably more than that now. But imagine one person's actions. Whether Mordecai was right or wrong in his disobedience, we see how his, in, his actions have impacted all of the Jews. What a sobering reminder for us to take heed how we live our life. So upon learning of this genocidal decree, Mordecai rents his clothes, puts on sackcloth and ashes, and it was an outward sign of, of inward distress. Now understand, clothes were a big deal in those days. I can rip a t-shirt now to impress Adrian, it's no big deal. That's not impressing anybody, nor myself. We'll leave it there. And I probably couldn't. That's what's said. You know, I would, I would start first. I would make a little, yeah. What's up, baby? Um, all right, focus. So we have closets full of nothing to wear, amen? They didn't. There's not this abundance of clothes back then for the common man. It was largely hand-to-mouth existence. And so to purchase clothes is a big deal. Therefore, when someone rent or tore their clothes, it was an indication something very distressful was going on in their life. Something way out of the ordinary is taking place. Something very distressful. It was a show of sorrow, grief, anguish, and mourning to a greater degree. When Job learned of all that had befallen him, in Job 1.20 we read, Then Job arose and rent his mantle, shaved his head, fell down upon the ground and worshipped. When David learned of Saul and Jonathan's death, we read in 2 Samuel 1.11, Then David took hold of his clothes and rent them. When Paul and Barnabas were in Lystra, the people took them to be gods. And in Acts 14.14 they come running in, Barnabas and Paul heard of it. They rent their clothes. When someone rent their clothes in that day, it was meant for people to take note. Something is up. Something distressing is going on with that person. In our Western culture, we don't behave that way. We tend to turn things inwardly. So-and-so lost a family member. Would you just let them have their time to grieve privately? In the Eastern culture, this was a very outward thing. And and so it's very distressing. People would see it. They would recognize something's going on. And many times when we read of the renting of clothes in the Scriptures, we read about sackcloth being put on. This takes the act from being very distressing to being something that you're greatly mourning over. In Revelation 6.12, we read how the sun will become black as the sackcloth of hair when the sixth seal is opened. And so when people put on sackcloth, it makes sense that it would be some sort of a dark garment. From what what I've read, sackcloth was uh, made of goat's hair. It would be very uncomfortable to wear. It's called sackcloth. So some people say the best way to think of it is like a burlap sack. Imagine wearing that upon your body. Comfy, right? 
You don't see Hanes doing commercials for burlap sacks. In addition to renting clothes and putting on sackcloth, this was often accompanied with the putting on of ashes. This was a sign of humility. After the children of Israel were defeated at Ai, we read in Joshua 7.6, Joshua rent his clothes and fell to the earth upon his face before the ark of the Lord until the eventide, he and the elders of Israel, and put dust upon their heads. Same concept. When Tamar was defiled, we read in 2 Samuel 13.19, and Tamar put ashes on her head and rent her garment of diverse colors that was on her and laid her hand on her head and went on crying. After God deals with Job, we read in Job 42.6, He says, Wherefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. After Jonah preached to Nineveh, we read in Jonah 3.6, for, for word came unto the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, and he laid his robe from him, and covered him with sackcloth and satin ashes. When God spoke through Jeremiah, foretelling of the captivity to come, he said in Jeremiah 6.26, O daughter of my people, gird thee with sackcloth and wallow thyself in ashes. Make thee mourning as for an only son, most bitter lamentation, for the spoiler shall suddenly come upon us. When Daniel needed a word from God and he goes to pray to God in Daniel chapter 9 and verse 3, I set my face unto the Lord God to seek by prayer and supplication with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And so this picture that we get here in the, in the beginning of chapter 4, it's one of distress. It's mourning. It's humility. And in verse 3, we see that in every province where this decree has arrived, all the Jews are doing the same thing. There's great mourning among the Jews and fasting and weeping and wailing, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. Now, while this is a great show of humility, distress and mourning... The, the outward show is there, but isn't it interesting that no, at no point is prayer mentioned? I don't know if we're meant to read between the lines and assume that prayer is involved, but it would seem that the absence of the mentioning of prayer is significant. Many times as I was looking at the, the occurrence of sackcloth in the Bible and ashes, you see it accompanied with prayer. And here there's no mention of prayer. And I think it may be to alert us to their spiritual condition at this time being outside of the will of God. God, through Isaiah, said in Isaiah 58, He upbraided them for, I don't want your show. I don't want your outward fast and all of that just to try to get my attention. I want your heart. And God said, I've had enough of that. I haven't called you to do that. So it's possible to have this open display of religion, if you will, and have your heart far from God. Psalm 66, 18, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. And how many have we seen that have demonstrated the outward appearance of humility, but they never really cried out to God? You can go through all the motions, but if you leave God out, it's all in vain. Joel chapter 2, verses 12 through 14. Therefore also now saith the Lord, turn ye even to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. 
Rend your heart and not your garments. Turn unto the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and repenteth Him of the evil. Who knoweth if He will return and repent and leave a blessing behind Him? The the point is we have to turn to God with our heart. The outward show is fine as long as there is a genuine, heartfelt connection with God. Otherwise, God says, I'm I'm against it. Fast all you want, put on sackcloth all you want, rent your clothes all you want, sit in ashes all you want. If I don't have your heart, I don't really care to hear it. Psalm 34, 18. The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart and saveth such that be of a contrite spirit. Psalm 51, verses 16 and 17. For thou desirest not sacrifice, else would I give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and a contrite heart. O God, thou wilt not despise. Isaiah 57, 15. For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Listen, I'm glad you're in church tonight. What a blessing. I love Wednesday night crowds. I'm glad you're here. I'm honored that you choose to come to this church to be fed the Word of God, to be taught and, and, and hear the Word of God expounded. I hope you're in the Bible devotionally, daily, personally. I'm thankful for all of you that serve in this local church, but what will it amount if we leave God out? If we don't have real humility with God Almighty, what are we doing? And while we may not do these kind of outward actions here in our culture today, I wonder if you have ever been moved to such humility that you would put on sackcloth and sit down in ashes. If not... What will it take for God to get your attention? Amen. He will break you. What's the Bible say? If He falls on you, you will be grind, ground to powder. But if you'll, if, how's it go? Or if you'll fall on Him, you will be broken. You know what I'm trying to say? I may have got that backwards. Somebody go back and double check this. But the point is, you either get broken by Him or He will break you in a way you don't want to be broken. And so does God have your heart? That's all He wants. So I don't know if prayer is accompanied here in the book of Esther or not. I'm definitely on the fence. There's times I'm studying this going, there's got to be prayer here. There's other times I'm like, "Uh, I don't know. I don't know exactly what's taking place here. But listen, humble yourself. Go to God in prayer. Get right with Him while there is hope. God wants to get His people's attention who are living outside of His will. And He brings circumstances into our life that are uncomfortable. That are unpleasant. And God says, I want your heart. Now listen, when, when we look at somebody on the outside and we, 
we see their circumstance, we're tempted to be the judge. We want to look at people and say, I know what your problem is, but listen, only that person and God know if that circumstance is meant to bring them closer to Him in a way that is breaking them. God will work to get your attention. Are you right with Him tonight? Isaiah 55, 6 and 7, Seek ye the Lord while He may be found. Call ye upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake His way and the unrighteous man His thoughts and let Him return unto the Lord and He will have mercy upon Him and to our God for He will abundantly pardon. Are you seeking Him while He may be found? He's bringing circumstances into your life for you to specifically seek for Him. And here's this people outside of the will of God. They should have went back to the land, but they're staying in Persia, and God has now brought about this circumstance that has caused them to humble themselves. Why did it have to get to this? There's things we look at and we, we say, what a tragedy. It could just be God getting a hold of somebody's life. Well, here's Mordecai. He's rent his clothes. He's put on sackcloth and ashes. He goes out into the midst of the city and he, he cries with a loud and bitter cry. This man's making a scene. He comes before the king's gate in verse 2, but he can go no further. He, he can't go through the gate into the gate because in that day you could not enter into the gate clothed in sackcloth in Persia. You could be killed. Some say what Mordecai is doing here is he's, he's, he's put on sackcloth, he's put on ashes, not only as a sign of distress and mourning and humility, but that he's, he's going before the king's gate and he's making this scene so that it gets Esther's attention. She doesn't know what's taking place yet. And so he, he's making this scene, if you will, to try to get her attention. To say, look, do you understand what's happening to our people? That makes sense to me. I think it's probably a combination of, of the distress and let me try to get her attention. The king, he's not interested in anybody coming into his presence with drama. <laughs> the king didn't want to be troubled with anybody coming before him who were not dressed pleasantly or acting in a way that he deemed worthy to be in his presence. And I, I see an interesting contrast here in these opening verses between the kingdoms of this world and Christ's kingdom. Matthew eleven seven through 10 And as they departed, Jesus began to say unto the multitudes concerning John, What went ye out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken with the wind? But what went ye out to see? A man clothed in soft raiment? Behold, they that wear soft clothing are in kings' houses. But what went ye out for to see? A prophet? Yea, I say unto you, and more than a prophet. For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. And Jesus goes on to talk about the kingdom of God, how it suffers violence and is taken by force. John the Baptist is this crazy man out there preaching in the wilderness. And he's preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he's dressed in camel's hair. Not comfortable. Just like sackcloth. And, and he's, he's 
telling people that the kingdom of God is at hand. What did you go out to see? People think of a kingdom and they think of all the pomp and all the religiosity. But when they went out to see this man preaching in the wilderness, and baptizing, they were sorely disappointed. Some want God because they want all the pleasantries they think that will accompany a life with God. But Jesus is indicating that the kingdom of God would not come through ease. There would be times of distress, mourning, times when we need to humble ourselves. John's dressed in camel's hair, picturing this out in the wilderness. He's not in the palace dressed in soft raiment. And yet he's saying the kingdom of God is at hand. And and don't think... Don't think that the kingdom of God is is always going to be accompanied with fine clothing. Don't expect things to be smooth all the time. There's going to be times where sackcloth and ashes are involved. We have to be invested. What did you expect to see when you came to the kingdom of God? People in fine clothing that are found in the king's palace. Did you only expect to enjoy blessings all the time? Never to be uncomfortable? There's another great contrast here that we see in the world's kingdom and Christ's kingdom by how we can approach our king of kings. None could come before the king of Persia unless they were deemed appropriately adorned. This is an anti-type of our heavenly king who says, Come unto me. Our king says, come to me as you are. I'll robe you. I'll give you Christ's robe of righteousness by his blood. God doesn't say, don't come before me until you are under control. Get yourself together. Stop crying. Stop slobbering. Stop crying. Stop making a scene. God says, come to me the way you are. God doesn't say, clean yourself up first. I don't want you coming into my presence all dirty, covered in dust, clothes all torn up. Don't come before me like that. God says, you come to me. God never says, I don't want to deal with your drama. Oh boy, here we go again. No, listen, God wants you to come to Him. The woman in the Song of Solomon wouldn't open the door to her beloved because she said, I've washed my feet. And if I get up, I'm going to defile them. And when she finally got up and she goes to the door, it was too late. Her beloved had moved on. He had left. But that's how so many people think. I've, I've got to be just so, just right. I've got to fit in this box in order for me to be able to come before God. Listen, God knocks. You don't have to make sure everything's just right. You just need to open to Him. Partake in fellowship with your beloved. He just wants you to come to Him. Isaiah 55, 1-3 Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters. He that hath no money, come ye, buy and eat. Yea, come, buy wine and milk without money, without price. Wherefore do you spend money for that which is not bread? And your labor for that which satisfieth not. 
Hearken diligently unto me, and eat ye that which is good, and let your soul delight itself in fatness. Incline your ear and come unto me. Hear, and your, and your soul shall live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you, even the sure mercies of David. That's Jesus Christ. John seven thirty seven. Jesus stood in the last day, that great day of the feast, crying, if any man thirst, Let him come unto me and drink. Our Lord wants all to come unto him. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 11, or 14, I get confused. But he says, suffer or allow the little children to come unto me and forbid them not, for such is the kingdom of God. God says, look, in my kingdom I want you. God says, come to me as you are and I will clean you up. Let me hear your troubles. Let me fight for you. Let me be your God. Come before me with a torn heart and I'll mend it. We are told to let our requests be made known unto God. We're invited to come boldly before His throne. Hebrews 4.16, let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Why? Because we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. God knows your struggles. He knows how to help. Better yet, He wants to help. Mordecai could only come to the king's gate, but he could go, he could go no further. He could not go through the gate. Our God says, don't just approach my gate, but God says, enter my gates. I want you to come fully unto me. Listen, don't be guilty of of having a God or viewing God as someone who is untouchable. He robed Himself in flesh for, for us that He might be a merciful and faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God to make reconciliations for the sins of the people. We have a high priest over the house of God who wants us to come to Him. With the death of Queen Elizabeth, the royal family in Britain has been all over the news. We're seeing all these scenes of the royal family and I don't really get it. I don't understand it. What do they do? Don't they have like a prime minister or something? Uh, Anyway. I I just don't understand the fascination. But you, you see all these scenes of the royal family and it's like you can still only get so far. There's only so much access you can get. But I want to tell you that King Jesus is not confined behind some palace walls. He's not confined behind some gate that is barred. He stepped out from His throne. He came in the flesh. And He said in Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 through 30, Come unto Me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take My yoke upon you. Learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Listen, don't put off going to your king. Don't put it off. Don't don't be guilty. I hear it way too much. God just doesn't want me like this. God, I I can't go to God like this. And I got. He died for you to have access to Him. He welcomes whosoever will come to Him through faith in Christ. So listen, are you in distress or mourning? Go to Him. I'll close by reading Edward H. Joy's hymn. Is there a heart overbound by sorrow? Is there a life weighed down by care? 
Come to the cross, each burden bearing. All your anxiety, leave it there. No other friend so swift to help you. No other friend so quick to hear. No other place to leave your burden. No other one to hear your prayer. Come then at once, delay no longer. Heed His entreaty kind and sweet. You need not fear a disappointment. You will find peace at the mercy seat. All your anxiety, all your care, bring it to the mercy seat. Leave it there. Never a burden He cannot bear. Never a friend like Jesus. Let's pray.